Okay, let's start uh, with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Ineffable Creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom hast appointed three hierarchies of angels, and set them in admirable order high above the heavens, and hast disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array, thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind, and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work. Thou who art true God and man, and liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Father Austin Woodbury, pray for us. Okay, so this is going to be the first one of these. So this is going to kind of be uh, me talking about what we're going to be doing, uh, going over uh, my plans, kind of the purpose behind everything I'm doing, all that fun stuff. And then also, I'm going to be going over a few comments on method, uh, basically telling you guys how to read, because uh, yes, I know uh, you guys know how to read, but you really don't know how to read, if that makes sense. Uh, you, can, you can pick out words, but it's actually very difficult to properly be able to study a text and get, get something good out of it. That's one of my goals here is really not to let you know everything you need to know. Um, if you wanted to do that, sorry. Uh, I don't think anybody has really uh, provided an adequate text uh, that summarizes everything in that way. Uh, that's not my goal. My, my goal is really to kind of teach you how to read scholastic works. So you're going to be able to, after all of these texts, you're going to be able to just pick up your summa and read it. Uh, that That's the goal. Because a lot of you guys, uh, you're in the kind of catechism stage of life. You've read through the catechism, uh, maybe watched some YouTube videos, or maybe a lot of YouTube videos, maybe read some other books of spirituality or some minor works of theology or, or even a minor manual or something. But you're, you're still not at the level where you're completely independent. And what it means to be independent in a in the sense of a student of theology is to be able to work through certain issues on your own without the guidance of a teacher and uh, there's another level above that which is be able to produce works uh, without the use of a teacher or to even yourself take the role of a teacher uh, so that that's going to be my goal uh, with this whole thing that i'm doing which is why we're just i'm not setting this up to where we go through some sort of summary of theology or uh, anything of that way, but we're kind of just, or, or even have me come up here and just tell you what I think are the most important ideas in St. Thomas, or tell you what I think uh, is are, are the defining uh, characteristics of St. Thomas's method or anything like that. that that's not what I'm doing. Uh, what, what we're going to be doing is just, you know, reading St. Thomas from easiest to a little bit more difficult, uh, finishing off with the Compendium Theologiae and De Ante Decentia, 
which are probably the two highest beginner works uh, in St. Thomas's Corpus. Right there is kind of when you hit Summa level. And then after Summa is going to be something like the commentary on the sentences, Summa Contra Gentiles. Um, let me think what else. Uh, De Potentia, De Veritate, kind of all of his quod libit uh, questions. But yeah, um, we're just going to be doing that. Um, are there any questions at this point? Doesn't look like any questions. Good. I, I really hate answering questions. <laughs> What's your question? Okay, uh, yeah, that's a good question. So what we're going to be doing is right now, I'm going to send some links in text discussion. Actually, I'll send in class notes. I guess that's the purpose of this. So the work right now that we're going to be reading is called On the Principles of Nature. Uh, this is basically kind of the easiest work that St. Thomas is going to give you uh, when it comes to philosophy. And it gives you some of the basic explanatory points in his philosophy. Uh, so we're going to be going through that first, uh, obviously. And then I have a list. Uh, if you go up to announcements, I think, yes, introduction to Thomism right there. So that is the list of different works we're going to be going through. Uh, so, yeah, um, Aquinas.cc. If you don't know about Aquinas.cc, uh, that link that I sent you, go to Aquinas.cc. On your phone, it's going to look weird, uh, just a heads up. So you're going to need to uh, look at it on your computer. Um, if you really can't do computer, uh, isidore.co slash Aquinas. This has the complete works of St. Thomas Aquinas. It doesn't have the same chapter headings. Um, I think I listed the paragraphs. I think I said first eight paragraphs is what's going on with um, with the Isidore.co website. So uh, good question uh, with that one. So when it comes to method of study, there's a lot of different vices that are pretty common in our groups. Uh, this isn't me just coming up here to beat you over the head. Uh, sometimes uh, it's going to seem like that uh, because there's a lot of different bad habits that most of us have built up over our educational careers. We are educated in a certain environment that is really disposed against proper learning and proper thinking. And a lot of those habits need to be broken. And sometimes it needs to be broken uh, in, a, in a more, I don't know how to put it, in a more violent way. Uh, let's say, a verbally violent way, at least. It, it needs to be something that uh, is is broken with, with force. So if you are worried about having your feelings hurt, um, this really isn't going to be the, the place for you. Because if you're going to be um, trying to learn and trying to read uh, honestly, then fine. Um, but if you're going to be trying to abuse uh, the works of St. Thomas uh, for ends in which they're not made for, um, I'm, then 
somebody's probably going to going to say something. Uh, at least I'm going to say something because the sooner you break out of these habits, the much better it's going to be for you. So it, it's not out of any sort of uh, perceived superiority on my part or anybody else's part here, but it's just because uh, we need to break a lot of these habits and it's going to help a lot of people. If we have people out there who imbibe the correct method of study, the correct method of argumentation, uh, the, just the correct method of approaching the role of theology in the spiritual life. So um, really, the when it comes to bad habits, they're going to fall into two different categories. Well, in the first, it's going to be just natural vices, uh, vices that you're going to, it's going to be any any work that you read, anything from a science textbook to Aristotle uh, to theology, uh, you're going to fall into these vices. And these are just vices when it comes to reading ability or your capability uh, to imbibe information. And on the other half, uh, we also have spiritual problems. So problems uh, with approaching uh, texts that are meant to be theological. So when it comes to uh, the just natural uh, kind of problems, uh, they're going to be of two types. So first, they're going to be problems of ordering. And then second, these are going to be problems of method. So when it comes to ordering, uh, a certain issue uh, that I often see when it comes to those who wish to learn really about any sort any sort of issue is they will approach the sort of community that is uh, interested in a certain uh, discipline, whether it be physics or mathematics or biology, biology or chemistry or theology or philosophy, really anything. They're going to approach this community and the way that they'll approach uh, learning that topic is going to be quite random. And I'm sure a lot of you, a lot of you are students of some sort. You, you see this uh, even in your natural disciplines is people approaching things randomly. They uh, are introduced to the certain group that studies this. And that group is going to have certain problems they want to fix. So, for example, let's uh, let's think of doctrine of God. If somebody uh, is really interested in doctrine of God, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to look at, uh, let's think, divine simplicity. Uh, I don't know, logical problem of the Trinity. Um, let me think of something. Uh, existence of God. These are going to be a few issues that are controversial, uh, at least publicly controversial. You have a lot of people on both sides yelling at each other. So this is going to be the issues that a lot of these people study first. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is, on the one hand, there's a lot more stuff to study. And on the other hand, you cannot possibly study these isolated issues without studying the rest of that, uh, of that discipline. So you can't know about divine simplicity unless you know uh, a few things about what, uh, let's say, an entitative attribute is. Well, a primary entitative attribute is. And you're definitely not going to be able to know what simplicity is if you don't know uh, certain things about being, uh, what the perfections of being are. Now, you learn the perfections of beings in metaphysics. You learn, um, uh, you, you really learn um, the primary entitative attributes 
I, I guess from an introduction uh, to the doctrine of God. There's a little section usually at the beginning of tracts that talk about things like that. But my point is you're not going to be able to understand all of these isolated little bits until you understand the whole. So when it comes to understanding the whole, this is going to require proper ordering. So throughout the history of Catholic theology, theologians and philosophers have been very, very careful with how they order knowledge. This is something which actually goes back to the time of Aristotle, uh, when some of his works, uh, actually a little bit after him, because some of his works were ordered, um, I think, around the third century, uh, if I'm after Christ, if I'm remembering correctly. They were ordered in such a way as was natural, beginning with on interpretation, and uh, I can't remember actually what the last work in the ordering is, really going from logic all the way through ethics is the basic idea. And why was this ordering done? Well, this ordering was done in order to have a proper uh, entrance of the mind into these various mysteries and to understand their mutual connection with one another. I guess natural mysteries uh, for when it comes to philosophy. But the same sort of tradition continues to our day. Uh, If you look in basically any book, well, any sort of serious educational book of philosophy or theology written before, let's say, 1950, it's going to be very deliberately ordered. And the best when it comes to this ordering of knowledge is going to be called the tradition of the manuals. So the manuals uh, are basically summaries of Catholic theology. Uh, We can think of the Summa as a type of uh, precursor um, to the manuals. So if you go on my website, um, you see I have a list of manuals. There's going to be certain good manuals of theology and philosophy that are going to teach you these things in summary fashion. It's going to teach you in proper order. So that's something important that I want to press on all of you is that if you're really interested um, in understanding uh, philosophy and theology in a a way that's whole, then something like a manual will be very important uh, for what you want to do. Is there a question? Sorry, somebody is unmuted. Rip. Sorry, my dude. Okay. So on the second, rather than just uh, the first is randomly looking at stuff. The second is going to be actually the the sort of study habits. uh, Study habits that you have. Okay, I'll unserver mute you then from lost. And you can just mute yourself. There you go. So, um, yes, study habits. And the work that you guys are going to want to read on this is going to be Mormiter Adler. I think I think his first name is Mormiter. I read this back when I was in high school, and then I read it recently. Adler. Uh, How to read a book. Excellent, excellent work. Very well written. Very easy to read. So there's a second issue is just... Most people, and this is going to be in class notes, just really don't know how to, it's, it's more, more timmer, more timmer, more timmer. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, but yeah, most people just don't know how to read a book, uh, even on the natural level. Uh, they, they kind of approach a text and awkwardly run through the text. Um, that's how most people are going to approach it. And they kind of get a data dump in their brain. 
Um, they come away from the text. A lot, I'm sure a lot of you have done it. You've spent like an hour, two hours, maybe reading a certain text. And then you think about that text later in the day. And you remember almost nothing from what you read. And you really got nothing out of it. Actually, you wasted your time. And it would have been better for you to, uh, I don't know, uh, like sweep your kitchen or something. Or or literally anything else in this world. Like cut your grass. Uh, do something like that. Because if, if you're not going to read properly, uh, it's actually about as equal as not reading at all. So one of the best investments you can make uh, for yourself is to spend a little bit of time learning how to read properly. Uh, and Adler's book is great on this. Uh, in summary, um, I'm just going to kind of quickly summarize uh, the way in which you want to read. Um, it's really going to have a, a sort of three-step uh, process. So first you're going to go through uh, – Adler gives a four-step process, but I'm going to leave out the last step. Um, so – when it comes to uh, the first step, it's going to be what's called pre-reading. So when you go to any sort of text, uh, you're going to you're one going to look at the front cover, maybe what's written on the back cover. Uh, look through all the chapter headings. Uh, the table of contents is going to be really important. Any sort of uh, subtitles that you're going to get in chapters to kind of get in your mind the general outline of the book, uh, get in your mind an idea of what you're about to read. You're going to want to read the uh, the preface and prefatory material, introduction, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, the conclusion, the conclusion is often very important because what you want to do at this point is kind of prime yourself for preparing with what you're reading. Uh, when you're reading nonfiction books, you don't want to be surprised. <laughs> you, you want to know uh, what you're reading before you're reading almost. Uh, that That's going to be the most helpful with being able to understand and not get lost. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you especially in some difficult theological texts, just get lost. Uh, and, and it's a bit frustrating. So you're going to want to go through this process of pre-reading. Uh, maybe uh, read through the first sentences of paragraphs. Uh, maybe write a little outline of the entire book uh, just from the headings and such, stuff like that. So you're able to kind of have the roadmap or, or at least a, uh, a, a sort of like navigational tool uh, to always know where you're at when you're reading. Uh, and after this, you're, you're going to want to go through a process of superficial reading. So superficial reading, uh, if you guys have ever uh, tried to read a text fast and you may kind of uh, skim or skip around a little bit, uh, you're still imbibing the material, but you're not thinking about it hard. Uh, that sort of reading. You're, you're actually going to want to do that after you do this process of pre-reading. Uh, this is very important. And actually, another Another thing I uh, forgot to mention is this is also important uh, when it comes to deciding whether you want to read a book or not. Uh, maybe you go through, look at the back cover, look at the front cover, read the conclusion, uh, do all those little tools of pre-reading or maybe the first read through. And you realize that this isn't a book that's worth spending your time on. And that's totally OK. It's actually totally OK to uh, look at look at a book like that, recognize you don't want to read it. And then just move on to a different book that's going to be worth your time uh, because your time is very valuable. Uh, you have to understand that. Let that be impressed upon you. Your time is very, very valuable and you don't want to waste it. So uh, in the in the third stage of reading, uh, what you're going to want to do, you're going to want to read analytically, uh, read analytically. So what does it mean to read analytically? And I actually 
I have an example, but I, I can't share my screen, unfortunately, uh, because I'm a boomer and it will take me too long to figure it out. But reading analytically, uh, if you've ever read, and this is actually, uh, it'd actually be very helpful if you read something like, I don't know, St. Thomas's Commentary on Philemon, uh, something short like that. But what you're basically doing in this process is you're reading uh, kind of for under for true understanding, to truly grasp uh, the text and all of its meaning, and also in all of its connections. What you're going to want to do is you're going to want to uh, find kind of the general thesis of the book uh, or a really general question of the book, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this should be obvious from your skim read and from uh, your looking through the table of contents and such. And what you're going to want to do is order all of the various parts around that thesis. Because you're, what you're going to have is basically uh, in any book, you're going to have a thesis. And then you're also going to have, uh, you're going to have arguments and you're going to have explanations. Arguments and explanations are in some, some way always related to the general thesis. And St. Thomas uh, actually does this for every single book he comments on. It's called a divisio textus. It's called a division of the text. You're looking at how each one of the paragraphs, uh, how, how the chapters relate to the whole, how the paragraph, how the sections relate to the chapter, how the paragraphs relate to the section, how the sentences relate to the paragraph. You're 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 kind of drawing on a, a sort of skeleton of the book. And at this point, uh, through this, you're asking yourself, okay, are these explanations compelling? Do they make sense? Do, they, do these arguments prove what, uh, what he thinks that they prove? These, these, are, these are very important parts. Uh, you're going to want to look at terminology that gets used over and over again in order to gain a sort of uh, mental index of all of the terms which are used. And um, again, this this process is laborious. Uh, over time, you're you're gonna kind of do this more naturally, especially when uh, I just kind of summarized Adler for you. But actually, go read Adler, um, and then you'll be able to get the full story. But that that's just my summary um, from memory. But uh, if if you're not reading a book like this, you have to ask yourself why you don't want to put your th that much time into that book you're reading. And you may say, well, um, I'm short on time. That's true. Uh, you are short on time. But you're finding time to read. And if you're limited on time, you're only go going to want to read the most important books. So if you're not willing to put uh, the sort of effort of getting at least a sort of basic outline and maybe some, maybe some notes that you're taking on a work, you have to ask yourself, is it even worth reading? You have to ask yourself also why you're reading it. Because I know it's a, a frequent temptation for many of us. Uh, this is a temptation I have myself all the time to read a book to say we've read it. And reading reading a book to say we've read it is possibly the worst the worst reason to read a book. Because you're not getting anything out of it. You're wasting your time. You're probably rushing yourself uh, through the book. It, it's not healthy. And it's not even going to really help you. Uh, it's actually going to hurt you. It's going to make you a worse reader when you're actually trying to read a book. And it's also going to play into um, the vice of pride uh, in your life. So th that's sort of on the natural level uh, right there. Just uh, knowing how to read a book is super important. Um, is, is there any questions at this point?
Okay. I will continue. So. Okay. So on the other hand, uh, besides these sort of natural uh, vices, since we are reading theology, uh, and actually since we are Catholics, this is something that you should be doing in all of your uh, sort of studies. There's going to be the spiritual aspect of reading. Uh, reading for us is never again and ought never to be a purely natural task. Uh, because we are, uh, in many cases, contemplating the mysteries of God, if we're reading theological literature, or even philosophical literature, where we're contemplating the works of God. And uh, if you ever get the chance, definitely read St. Thomas's commentary on uh, Dionysius's, Dionysius's divine names. Uh, when you contemplate the works of God, even in nature, you can contemplate God uh, through those works in nature. Uh, it's not only through uh, revelation that we're able to uh, contemplate God, because we have a uh, mind, which is, uh, we have an intellect, which is a power of the soul, which is elevated through grace. Um, so reading is not a natural task anymore. So when it comes to your reading, you have to be very self-reflexive. You have, you have to think about how you go through the process of reading in the spiritual life. Because uh, there, there's a good story um, from St. Thomas. St. Thomas uh, would always, uh, when he found a certain difficulty, would go before the tabernacle and pray. Uh, St. Thomas uh, was known for his, his sort of lengthy prayers uh, when it came to times that St. Thomas uh, couldn't understand a certain passage. There's another story where uh, Saints Peter and Paul, uh, Brother Reginald, uh, tells this story to um, Father William de Tocco. Uh, Brother Reginald was St. Thomas's assistant. That uh, St. Thomas couldn't figure out a passage from the prophet Isaiah. So Saints Peter and Paul went and visited and told him the meaning of the passage. So uh, all this to say is that the spiritual life and reading are intimately connected. Uh, what's super important for me, um, it, this is going to be different on different texts. Uh, and over time, uh, as, as you mature, you're going uh, mature in your reading life. You're going to be able to discern which texts are which. But uh, when it comes to super important texts, you're going to want to read them in a super important place. Uh, for example, um, in front of me, I have a crucifix uh, on my desk. I have holy water. I have icons uh, surrounding me. Uh, some some people uh, find uh, reading before the Blessed Sacrament uh, to be helpful. But all this to say is that you want to treat reading as a devotional act, as an act uh, of the virtue of religion, that you're giving some sort of spiritual sacrifice before God uh, in, in using your intellect to contemplate him through his works. This is something that's very important. You're going to want to start Every single time before you read, invoke uh, saints that may be connected uh, with what you're reading or maybe your patron saints. You're going to want to pray for the divine light uh, because theology is something which is a uh, it's said to be a radically supernatural. Uh, that is supernatural at the root science. So it's going to require uh, the virtues and the gifts in order to push you along. Uh, into an understanding of the mysteries of the faith. 
And also while you're reading, I think this is actually more important. A lot of people understand like, yeah, before I read, pray, like, yeah, whatever, Christian, make sure uh, you, you, you get in a good place. Make sure you're not distracted. Make sure you're not uh, like audio, audio, uh, book on three times speed uh, sort of thing. Uh, just because I want to get this thing done. Don't do that. Um, uh, audiobooks can be helpful and I've, and I use them frequently, uh, but they're only helpful uh, when it comes to certain texts uh, and definitely not the text we'll be reading. Um, but yeah, you kind of, you kind of know all that already. Uh, maybe I'm just repeating something that you already know. But what's really important is while you're reading, while you're reading is very, very, very important because you're going to be reading things that are true. I think that often gets lost in a lot of us when we read uh, about certain concepts, when you read about certain events, those events happen, those concepts exist. Uh, we, we aren't we can't become detached from that which the words in front of us signify. We can't become detached from the author. And what does this mean? What does this mean for us? So when we're reading, uh, and this especially is true um, for myself when it comes to reading De Deo Uno, and, well, and, and De Deo Trino also, basically when it comes to reading about God, is you are in a sort of mood, I guess is the best way of putting it, a sort of mood of continual contemplation. So in this contemplation, you're going to be uh, elevating your mind to God. And continually uh, having what are called, uh, what's the, I, I, I want to not use the, the funny, oh yeah, people call it arrow prayers. They're also called ejaculations, uh, but I prefer arrow, arrow prayers. So arrow prayers or ejaculations, those, those are short, short little um, sentences uh, of prayer uh, when it comes, uh, which are delivered towards God. So um like have mercy upon me as sinners is a famous one. So uh, you're, you're going to want to constantly uh, deliver prayers into God uh, in uh, petitioning his mercy, uh, glorifying him for the things you're reading. So it, reading at that point uh, becomes an act of, of worship and uh, God will not, um, God will, will not, uh, hesitate to bless such reading. Uh, I've, I've definitely uh, experienced that in my own uh, life of reading, is that reading which is uh, pious in approach is a reading where I understand a lot better. It's a reading where I retain a lot better. So you may want to rush, you may have that temptation, but in the end, uh, you're just going to you're just going to waste more time. You're going to be doing reading, which is unfruitful. You're not going to have the divine assistance when it comes to your reading. Um, so uh, that that's my little spiel. Um, my third, well, my 30 minute long spiel uh, when it comes to uh, the sort of natural and supernatural. Uh, actually, no, I have, I have one more, one more thing. So, Another one's going to be, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm rambling a lot, but another thing is going to be uh, when it comes to moral preparation. Moral preparation is very important. So this is something which is ancient, uh, the ancient peripatetic schools, that is the schools following Aristotle and Plato. Uh, they had a period of 
moral uh, catechesis uh, before they were able to be introduced uh, to the philosophical mysteries. This is also something which is uh, seen in the practice of the religious orders. Uh, There is this period of moral transformation at the beginning of one's study. So uh, all this is to say is that the moral life is extraordinarily important uh, when it comes to uh, preparing oneself, on the one hand, preparing oneself uh, for the reception of knowledge, and on the other hand, uh, as an act of living out that which you read, is that which you read uh, becomes a sort of lens uh, for viewing all of, um, sorry, my son's crying in the background, but it becomes a lens of the experience of all of reality. Uh, Because again, uh, you have to remember what we're reading is true. And when what we're reading is true, uh, it's going to be something which actually happened or actually occurs around us and actually exists around us. So uh, we we can't become detached uh, either from our text or or from the world um, to where the realities which are signified in our text subsist. So, okay, I think I think that's all I have. Is there any questions about proper method of reading? Um, Hassan's here, so he might want to like go on a five hour rant about this. Nope, we're good. Okay, uh, that's that's a that's a good uh, question. Sorry, Hassan is going off in class notes. Um, good question. So when it comes to uh, the text I'm going to assign, I'm going to assume that you're going to be able to read these texts in like 15 minutes. Now, why do I do that? Uh, because you're you're probably uh, really zealous. Everybody here is probably really zealous right now. It's like, yeah, sign me like 500 pages and I'll read them, uh, Christian. By next week, I promise I'll read them all. Um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, I think uh, giving short chunks and then covering those short chunks in a very thorough manner is going to be much more helpful uh, for you guys than just throwing a lot of Uh, material your way and seeing what sticks. So yeah, um, when it comes to just reading speed in general, uh, that might've been what you're asking. Um, It really varies uh, from person to person and then also from stage to stage. So, and also from work to work. Uh, So it's a very uh, diverse uh, question. I have, I have a certain professor used to say that it would take him an hour to read a paragraph of some sections of Thomas. Uh, just because of how rich um, it was. And he would just repeat it over and over again and then find out all of the the sort of conclusions, uh, kind of set it in uh, set it in relation to the highest principles, all that fun stuff. But um, I, I, don't, I don't think uh, normal people uh, at least should be expected um, to sit there and, and, and read a paragraph in, in an hour. Um, you, you, you should be fine. But yeah, if it's, um, if it's, an issue of understanding, uh, and, and I guess you would say, oh, well, well, they're all issues of understanding. What I mean by that is you just don't understand what a term means, and you kind of try to look it up, uh, and, and you 
you're not you're not finding anything like like there was a there was a term that I had read. Uh, I, I distinctly remember this uh, freshman year. Uh, I was I was studying doctrine of God in one of my dogmatic theology classes, and the term omnimodal uh, came up. And I asked my professor. My professor actually had no idea what omnimodal meant. He's like, well, I guess it just means all modes. Um, but it actually had some sort of particular, uh, some sort of particular flavor in Reformed theology at the time that I couldn't really uh, pick up. So uh, when it comes to an error, uh, well, an issue like that of understanding, uh, there's text discussion. Uh, this channel up here. Um, if you spend a little bit of time on it, read it a second, a third time, give it a day, sort of turn it over, uh, engage in some prayer, and you still can't get it. I just throw it in text discussion and uh, I'm sure I'll be here to explain it or somebody else will try to explain it. What is omnimodal though? It, it's, it basically means like every single. Um, so when it comes to the perfections of God, it means that the, that all created modes uh, are, are sort of simply, um, simply resolved in the, uh, super substantial and uh, simple essence of God. Uh, that, that's kind of what the the term meant. But, you know, nobody was there to explain that to me, so I had to kind of figure it out on my own. So uh, that is all for that. So do you want to actually uh, – yeah, we got plenty of time, 20 minutes. Yeah, I, I purposefully gave a really short uh, – is there a question? Yeah, so um, that's a good point. I forgot to mention collects. So yeah, on the on the one hand, there's the the sort of pious ejaculations, and that's going to be you're you're going to have have like the pulse on on your on your affections. You're you're going to want to always know where your affections are. Uh, maybe you read something that's uh, makes you exceedingly sorrowful. That you're going to want to make sure you express that in a short ejaculation. But yeah, uh, that, that's going to be something that keeps you moving in your reading. Uh, because if you kind of just stopped and like had a whole um, like mental prayer session uh, after reading something exceedingly uh, profound, uh, then you would never, uh, especially for reading St. Thomas, you'd never get through it. But yeah, when it comes to uh, writing collects, uh, there is a sort of, I'm going to try to, Uh, I'm not going to find it actually, but yeah, there's sort of a basic order um, that if you are in the, uh, if you frequently pray daily prayer, can I kind of get this? This is a little bit more explicit in the Anglican tradition, but um, you're going to want to start uh, with kind of, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to get uh, an example up. Let's do fourth Sunday after Trinity. I'm just doing a random one. Uh, random Anglican collect. Um, mm, sorry. 
Yeah, but this is sort of a example collect right here. O God, the protector of all that trust in thee, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy. Increase and multiply upon us thy mercy, that thou, being our ruler and guide, we may so pass through these things temporal, that we finally lose not the things eternal. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake, uh, our Lord. Amen. So the whole idea of a collect is it's going to have uh, two main parts. And I guess you could add a third part. But the first part is you're going to be naming uh something or mentioning something so this first part oh god the protector of all that trust in thee without whom nothing is strong nothing is holy so let's say you are uh contemplating the uh the sort of hope that we have uh through the omnipotence of god you may say something like that and after uh sort of you mention kind of that which you're reading uh th this sort of first part is a bit of a summary of of what you have been reading after this you uh give what's called a petition so based on that thing that you have been reading or based on uh, i guess it doesn't even have to be a thing that you've been reading but maybe that you've been thinking about you're going to uh give some sort of petition to god um that he may uh act in your life or in another life or, or in, on the church or the entire world or a certain loved one that he may uh, from that, which you have contemplated actually sort of break through uh, in reality. So you may um, be contemplating the mercy of God. You may uh, begin, Oh God, um, who art all merciful. And then uh, when it comes to the petition, uh, grant that all men may come uh, unto the truth uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, that's that's a very simple uh, version because obviously I just came uh, off the cuff with it. But yeah, when it comes to collects, uh, that's sort of at the end of a section uh, that you have done. You're going to kind of look at the, that which you have read, uh, sort of maybe the main thesis of what you've read. And then you're going to want to uh, name God or adore God, I guess is a better word, uh, for that which you have read and then petition on the basis of that. Um, and then it's going to be at the end, uh, some sort of normal ending through Christ our Lord. And then um, maybe other prayers, uh, depending on how your your sort of personal piety works. But yeah, uh, collects are meant sort of to... I guess I never mentioned the ending of uh, of a reading session, but yeah, collects are very helpful for that. The ending of a reading session where ejaculations are going to be a uh, throughout, uh, which are going to still be able to keep you going. Okay. Can you please in short repeat how the third stage analytical analytical reading should look like is basically synthesizing the ideas uh, when it comes to the, the, th um, the third stage, the third stage, oh, Hassan. Oh, Hassan left right when I was answering his question. That jerk. Um, yeah, analytical reading is basically outlining or giving a division of the text in order to see how all of the, all, all the different parts uh, relate to the whole. And I'm going to give an example um, uh, right when I get into on the principles of nature. And then, yeah, final stage. So that, that's the answer to your question, just outlining. Oh, can nobody hear? Rip. Can everybody hear now? I'm assuming you can. Okay, based. 
Uh, let's get on actually to the text that we're supposed to be discussing. And I'm going to give a little bit of a um, example. And I'm going to send in text chat. These are my notes. Yes, St. Vincent. Yes, uh, that that's his introduction to it's an introduction to the spiritual life. I think I'm remembering the title correctly. It's like super short, but it's fantastic. Okay, so in text discussion, I'm going. Oh, oh, good. It kept my outline. Boom. This is my this is actually my outline of the first chapter. And sorry if my my writing is a bit autistic. It is what it is. So this, this is sort of an example uh, of, of what you're going to want to do. You're going to want to try basically to split into twos as much as you can. You're going you're gonna to split uh, the, the sort of introductory section from the body. You're going to split the, the explanatory part uh, to the argumentative part. You're going to split the even down to like the major premise, the minor premise. Like you're, you're going to split everything. And this is sort of what I've, I've done here. Uh, and I'm going to be getting into the, the text itself and explaining it. So uh, I'm going to be on, I'm going to try to see if I can share my screen, if I can figure out how to do that, because that would be a lot easier. Man, there's a lot of you guys here. Okay, smoother video. Yes, we care about smoother video. Go live. We're live right now. Okay, so it's up. Okay, this is Aquinas SEC, by the way. So, chapter one, act and potency. Note that some things can be, although they are not, and some things now are. Those which can be and are not are said to be in potency, but those which already exist are said to be in act. So, we're pretty uh, simple here. Uh, it's, it's just whatever is act, Whatever can be potency. So uh, next, I guess this is going to be my little dig. But next time you hear uh, Jay Dyer say that there's potency in God, um, what he's saying is that God lacks some sort of perfection of, of being. Uh, he, he lacks some sort of isness uh, to him. So it's it's a very blasphemous statement to actually say that there is uh, a there is some sort of potency in God. But existence. Is twofold because, uh, as we already said, there's going to be either um, actual or there's going to be potential. But when it comes to the actual, there can be two types of actual. There could be essential or substantial existence of a thing. For example, man exists. And this is existence simply speaking. So existence simplicitary. So this is simple existence. This is all basic stuff right here. The other is accidental existence. For example, man is white. And this is existence in a certain respect. Existence secundum quid or existence relatively. Now, why is it called existence relatively? Well, it's called existence relatively because it needs something else. That, that's all that it means. It's going to uh, need the inherence of a certain subject. Like whiteness is the whiteness of man, where man is just the man of man. So this sort of fundamental divide between act and potency, uh, 
We're going to be able to make another division when it comes to existence between substantial and uh, accidental. So if you're astute, you're going to kind of realize where things are going from here. So that's basically what this whole first chapter is going to be. He distinguishes between act and potency, distinguishes between um, essay uh, simply, then essay secundum quid. And then he's going to say, well, there's going to be an act, which is uh, simple existence. There's going to be an act, which is relative existence. There's going to be a potency, which is simple existence. There's going to be a potency to relative existence. So you see, this is kind of uh, from my division of the text. I've been able to recognize that this first paragraph is actually going to be the interpretive key, not only for, for this uh, first chapter, but really for the, the rest of the work, is understanding we have act on the one hand, potency on the other hand, substantial on the one hand, accidental on the other hand. And this is going to offer the, um, the sort of interpretive apparatus. So continuing. Moreover, for each existence, there is something in potency. So uh, we already kind of talked about existence. We said act and potency. So each one of these existences, there is going to be something in potency. So we think about man. Something is in potency to be man as sperm or the menstrual blood. And if you don't know about medieval embryology, uh, they thought that a mixture of sperm and menstrual blood is what um, formed man. And something is in potency to be white as man. So we see something can be in potence to substantial existence. So sperm and menstrual blood are said to be in, uh, in potency to the existence of man. And I wish I, I wish I would have made a chart, like, like a little square chart, you know, because we could have, we could have charted on, it would have been fun, but I forgot, uh, I guess I slipped my mind to do that. So on the one hand, we have potency to substantial existence. The other hand, we have potency to accidental existence. So potency to accidental existence is like, man, all of us are in potency to actual existence, to uh, accidental existence. Uh, if I guess this would be a bad example. Uh, let me think of a, a PC example. Um, actually, screw it. If uh, somebody wanted, uh, I'm in potency to being like black. Uh, sorry. If somebody wanted to paint me black, and I, and I mean this like promise, trust guys, not being racist. Um, if somebody wanted to paint me black, then uh, I could become black. So I'm I'm in potency to the accident of blackness. I'm in potency to that color. Because somebody could paint me that color. I, maybe I should have said like blue or something. Okay, there. Uh, erase that from your memories. I meant blue. Trust. So, uh, on the other hand, both that which is in potency to substantial existence and that which is in potency to accidental existence can be called matter. So, when we talk about matter, this is going to be one of the fundamental. Uh, this is going to be one of the fundamental concepts in Thomistic philosophy. This could be matter. St. Thomas uh, has these great sort of couplings of act, act and potency. We're actually be talking about one above uh, this level in Dante Decentia. Um, he, has, he has a fun little um, extra level, but this is sort of the basic package right now. We're not going to be getting to the extra level to later. But broadly speaking, potency to something is matter. For example, sperm is the matter of man, and man is the matter of whiteness. Now, this term matter, 
It comes from mater, which comes from mother. It's it's the certain, uh, I guess you could say, like passive and fruitful principle of the of the creation of a certain thing. So uh, if you want to think of like all of the ingredients in a cake, that is the matter out of which the cake is formed. Where the cake itself also can be regarded as the matter of the tastiness of the cake. But these differ. So to be the matter of a man and to be the matter of whiteness, those are different things. Why? Because as we saw up here, there's a difference between accidental and substantial existence. So, uh, because that which is in potencies of substantial existence is called matter from which. So these are going to be one of those terms you're going to want to remember, materia ex qua, matter uh, out of which or matter from which. Um, but that which is uh, in potency to accidental existence is called the matter in which, materia in qua. So uh, these terms are really self-explanatory. You see like the eggs and the flour and then, the, I don't know, cocoa powder. I don't know. I've made a cake in so long. I'll have to ask the woman. Um, again, I mean that in the least offensive way possible. Um, if there happens to be a woman out there, I promise. Uh, but yeah, uh, the eggs, the flour, the whatever goes in a cake, that is that out of which, out of which, ex qua, out of which the cake is made. But when you look at uh, the cake itself and you think of the cake's tastiness or the cake's uh, whiteness or whatever it may be, those accidents, those accidental existences, don't aren't formed out of the cake no 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 they exist in the cake it is a matter in which they exist there's uh there's an accidental uh, existence rather than a substantial existence uh, which is formed so continuing we're going to find a term out it's a fun term called prime matter again properly speaking that which is in potency to substantial existence is called prime matter but that which is in potency to accidental existence is called the subject. So prime matter, prime matter is basically potency to substantial existence. That's all it is. You, know, you can't really grasp it because if you're grasping it, that means it has some sort of uh, actual existence to it. It's, it's kind of like you, you just think of it like nothingness uh, if you want to. It's not, not like the like how we would think of matter. But yeah, prime matter is that sort of potentiality uh, out of which things exist. That's prime matter. And that's what St. Thomas called materia ex qua. On the other hand, we have the subject. So uh, each, each man is a subject of certain accidents. So we are each, we, we each are in potentiality to certain accidental existences. Thus, we say that accidents are in a subject. We don't say that the substantial form is in a subject. Okay, we, we act. Okay, people are leaving and entering. That mean that I cut out again? Nope, it doesn't mean that. No, I think I'm good. I would be being just. Uh, okay, well, just like tag me five like gorillion times, and I'll and I'll hear the the tag things. 
Okay, so no, you got to do it, or I won't come back. I'll I'll just talk into the void for like twenty minutes. Okay, thus we say that accidents are in a subject. So if you ever wonder what accidents means, this is what it means. And uh, eventually we can talk about the whole transubstantiation question, but you need to know what accidents are first before you even talk about that. But just for now, accidents are in a subject. That's uh, that that's how we've uh, we've defined it uh, at this point with the divisions that we've made. But we do not say that the substantial form is in a subject. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What is this? What is this substantial form that you talk of? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. So when it comes to Thomistic philosophy, as I said, it's really built up of a pairing of opposites. So we have, uh, and this is going to be something he talks about Dante at Desencio, but I'll give you a little taste of it first. We know that on the one hand, we have what's called actus ascendi, the act of essence, or a lot of people call it being. So the actus ascendi, or being, uh, is going to combine with essence, and that's going to form form. So an essence with existence forms form. And then the form... So we can think of like the, the form of man, which is the soul. Uh, we can think of like the form of a uh, cup. We can think of the, basically that actual principle. It's kind of dragged down into being an individual through this combination with matter. So we have substantial form. We have the uh, prime matter. They come together and they form a substance. Or, uh, or he calls, or he calls it right here, a subject. And in this subject comes out accidents, which uh, I guess you could say is like the the outworking of the the certain thing out into the world, uh, however you want to think of it. But that, in a nutshell, is is Thomistic metaphysics right there. And then we're going to be able to kind of burn through the rest in this uh, way. Matter differs from subject. Because a subject is that which does not have existence by reason of something which comes to it. Rather, it has complete existence of itself, just as man does not have existence through whiteness. So we don't have our existence through our accidents. We have existence through our substantial form. I am a man because I have the form of man. I'm not a man because I'm white or because I'm this tall or because I'm in this location. Um, if I, again, got painted blue, I would still be a man. But if I had my soul taken away from me, I would not be a man. I would, uh, I would definitely not be a man. So this substantial form is that through which we have existence. Or, uh, yeah, substantial form is that through which we have uh, existence and essence. I'm going to say that too. But matter has existence by reason of what comes to it. Because of itself, it has incomplete existence. So uh, the accident uh, exists for the sake of the subject, um, and then the prime matter as well uh, doesn't have existence by reason of itself, but only has existence by reason of, um, of its union with the form. Hence, simply speaking, the form gives existence to matter. The accident, however, does not give existence to the subject. 
Rather, the subject gives existence to the accident, although sometimes the one is used for the other, namely matter for subject and conversely. Now, continuing. But just actually, I need to text Eric real quick. Let him know. off the okay continuing but just as everything which is in potency can be called matter so everything uh, from which something has existence so something has act whether that existence be substantial accidental can be called form we already kind of went over form for example man since he is white uh, impotency becomes actually white through whiteness. And sperm, since it is man impotency, becomes actually man through the soul. They would say uh, the sperm gets a soul. Well, really the sort of conglomeration of all of the sort of principles of biological existence uh, get a soul kind of yeeted into it. Uh, and then it becomes a man. But all that's important is that's the form which brings existence to the matter. Also, because form causes existence in act, we say that the form is the act. However, that which causes substantial existence in act is called substantial form. And that which causes accidental existence in act is called accidental form. So again, just kind of working out all the implications of what we were talking about in the first paragraph. And then now we kind of move over uh, as we see if you want to look in my, where is it? I put in class notes, I put in text discussion. If you look at my little outline, uh, if you look at my little outline up there, this is kind of the second uh, of the second. So this is when he starts discussing the relationship between uh, matter and form dynamically. How does matter go to form and how does form go to matter? So because generation is a motion to form, okay, great. We have what what is what is the what is the transition uh to having a form? This is called generation. There is a twofold generation corresponding to this twofold form. Again, we already talked about there's accidental and there's substantial form. So we're gonna say there's gonna be accidental and substantial generation. Generation, simply speaking, corresponds to the substantial form. And generation in a certain respect that is secundum quid, corresponds to the accidental form. When a substantial form is introduced, we say that something comes into being simply speaking. For example, we say that man comes into being or man is generated. But when an accidental form is introduced, we do not say that something comes into being simply speaking, but that it comes into being as this. So I would come to being as white. I wouldn't come to being simply speaking like being a man. I would just come to being as white or under a certain respect or relatively. So we're just going over generation right now and how that intera uh, interacts with the two types of existence. For example, when man comes into being as white, we do not say simply that man comes into being or is generated, but that he comes into being or is generated as white. There's a twofold corruption opposed to this twofold generation. So we've talked about the transition from uh, non-existence to existence. Uh, what about the other way around? What about the transition from existence to non-existence? There's a twofold corruption opposed to this twofold generation. 
simply speaking, and in a certain respect, generation and corruption, simply speaking, are only in the genus of substance. So only the generation and corruption of substances. But generation and corruption, in a certain respect, are in all the other genera. If you want to know about all the other genera are, uh, that is what all the accidents are, you can read Aristotle's categories. He goes over all the individual um, ones. Also, because generation is a change from non-existence to existence, contrarily, corruption should be from existence to non-existence. Again, this is pretty simple when you kind of understand the flow of the text. However, generation does not take place from just any non-being, but from the non-being, which is impotency. So you can't, you can't have a sort of, like, I can't change into a man because I already am a man. I'm not in potency to being a man. I'm an act of being a man. So you need a being in potency in order to do it. For example, a statue comes to be from bronze, which is a statue in potency and not an act. Thus, we're going to get into this final paragraph. And this paragraph is going to set the stage. Now that we've went over all the basic concepts, we're going to set the stage for the rest. In order that there be generation, three things are required. Being in potency, which is matter. Non-existence in act, which is privation. So first you have to have uh, matter. Then you have to have uh, the non-inclusion of form. And that through which something comes into act, which is form. So to this uh, conglomeration of non-existence and matter, you have to have the form come to it in order to vivify it. For example, when a statue is made from bronze, the bronze, which is in potency to the form of the statue, is the matter. The shapeless or undisposed something is the privation. And the shape because of which it is called a statue is the form. But it is not a substantial form because the bronze, before it receives this uh, shape, has existence and act. And its existence does not depend upon that shape. Rather, it is an accidental form because all artificial forms are accidental. Art operates only on that which is already constituted in existence by nature. This, this last concept, uh, I mean, this last sentence isn't really that important, uh, but it's basically saying uh, there's a difference between things and artifacts. Like I always use the example of cups, but cups technically aren't things. Cups are artifacts. There's something which is uh, formed from nature uh, into a certain thing, but it's a, it's a purely accidental form, actually. So cupness is an accident. It isn't a, an actual thing. Uh, where on the other hand, a man uh, is a thing. So, yeah, uh, but that's it's kind of unimportant. So we went over the sort of, as a final summary, I guess, we went over accidental existence, substantial existence. And on the other hand, um, uh, went over uh matter and form and how that relates to substantial and accidental existence. And then we went over the, the transition from matter and form, uh, which is generation and corruption. And then finally concluded with uh, those things that are requisite, which is going to be uh, matter, privation, and then form. Okay, so that is all I have. Um, I'm going to answer any questions, and then get going to the chill stream that I'm supposed to do tonight. Maybe I'll cancel that. Who knows? Big if true. Go ahead.
uh, you're cutting out, but I heard the first part uh, about God being pure form. So I will answer on the basis of that, assuming that that's just uh, that's just your question. So, yeah, uh, when it comes to a uh, what's said to be a simple form, uh, because when we interact uh, with forms in this world, we interact with forms as they are united to matter. Uh, we don't sort of interact with the pure platonic uh, form of bookness in this world. We don't interact with that. Rather, we're going to interact with all of these different concrete forms. Now, uh, as we saw in this first chapter, a form only has the notion of act to it. Form does not have the notion of potency to it. And this is actually uh, why we can see a little bit of the trouble uh, behind the Platonic system is because every form is going to have to uh, be pure actuality. And uh, anything that's pure actuality is not going to be in potency to, um, to anything. So it's going to have all, I guess you could say all, if, if, if it's one form, it's going to have to include all the forms uh, sort of thing. And uh, the Christian theologian can say like, yes, <laughs> actually we can agree to that. Uh, we can say that um, the, the form uh, of, of one perfect, well, the form of one thing has the form of everything else. So any, any single thing which has the concept of pure perfection is uh, its formality is going to exist in God. So goodness, truth, uh, beauty, uh, being, um, intelligence, all of these different things uh, as form are perfections. So God is a pure and simple form uh, having all of those perfections. On the other hand, we can have things that are uh, said to be mixed perfections. So, um, they're going to be a sort of mixture between uh, essence and existence, uh, uh, which, which is going to be, we're going to get that into that in De Antetisentia, but, but for now, that's not too important. But things like man, uh, tree, rock, all of those things, uh, they have certain imperfections in their, uh, in their sort of concept. So they still exist in God because there are certain perfections there, but they don't exist formally, uh, former formally in God, but only as uh, to exist virtually in God, and that God has the uh, power to cause and also um, contains the perfection that they do have in a supereminent manner. But yeah, that, that's what that's what's meant by uh, sort of God as a simple form. You see this throughout uh, the beginning of Prima Pars. Oh, yeah. And uh, before the next question, um, so in announcements, uh, I pinned a message, um, as, as I've said, uh, going to keep this free forever, uh, to the end of the days till, till when I quit this, uh, this is kind of where I want to go, uh, in terms of, um, more of my, uh, apostolate work, uh, is into things like this. Uh, so since everything's free, uh, running on donations, uh, there's a few ways to, donate you can be a patron paypal cash app uh, whatever uh if you don't that's fine um uh as a minimum i guess if you know anybody who would be interested in stuff like this uh you can just send them the discord link i guess i'll put that in the announcements um or actually it's on the website so if you just go to my website there's a big old explanation for what i do why i do it um yeah, so that's all. Uh, if you know anybody who likes to donate to Catholic causes, 
uh, <laughs> you can definitely drop the drop the apostolate name and kind of what we do. Uh, because, yeah, I'd actually like to transition uh, to this. And I think this is work which is going to be uh, helpful for a lot of people. So uh, after that brief excursus, uh, anybody who also has a question can can give it. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I guess it kind of depends on um, your sort of disposition. For me, uh, when I read a certain text, I want to get the entire like skeleton of the text uh, kind of in my brain. So actually, uh, the, the sort of first step that I have, um, I guess, uh, did I did I write anything dumb? Can I send this? I'm just making sure. I didn't write anything dumb. Okay, I didn't write anything dumb. So I actually had a first version of this. Uh, I actually go through, I'm um, sending it in the text discussion. I go through, I, I kind of write uh, uh, all of what goes on in each one of those sections. And sometimes this gets pretty extensive. I'll, I'll give certain notes or reflections or whatever it may be. And then I make sure when I'm done, I, I distill it all. Um, distill it all. Uh, into a uh, an outline like that. Okay, let me look in text discussion because it looks like there are questions in here. So yeah, um, that is that, that's at least the way I do it. That's the way that Saint Thomas uh, really liked doing it. Uh, but sure, if you uh, if you want to write more extensive notes, like something like this, uh, order wise can be um, brought in. Like uh, like how Woodbury Woodbury wrote exactly like that. Yeah, he has like five thousand divisions of the article. Yeah. Guys, I'm I'm sorry I said I have potency to be black. Uh, uh, that that was just what first came into my brain because he kept saying to whiteness, you know, it, it's St. Thomas's fault. It's not my fault. Yeah, exactly. Uh, materia comes from mater. Um, this is actually kind of funny. Uh, this is this is going to be a brief excursus on. Uh, how to be a more effective uh, sexist, uh, joking. Uh, but this is actually why uh, women uh, tend to be less uh, intelligent uh, than men. This is in terms of uh, intelligence as the abstraction uh, from matter and uh, the sort of intuition of forms, I guess if you want to put it like that. The reason is, is because women... Um, are uh, in the sort of the entirety of their being are ordered more towards matter than form. Uh, and this is why matter is a mater. It has to do with a sort of passive reception. Uh, and then in that passive reception, the production of life. So biologically and psychologically, uh, women are not ordered as much to form. Now, when it comes to the intellect, well, when it comes to the, the, uh, uh, the will, the will is actually uh, ordered towards this sort of reception. So this is why women actually excel in the spiritual life and in love. And men, on the other hand, uh, are more ordered towards activity, are more ordered towards uh, the form of certain things. 
And that's why um, we, we're going to excel in the intuition of forms and an abstraction from matter. Uh, this is why um, 90% of uh, STEM students are men. Oh, and, and if you didn't have all of these programs trying to get women, it'd be much higher than that. Uh, just because, you know, we're, we're ordered towards abstractions where, where women are, are not ordered towards abstractions, but uh, they are ordered more towards uh, the sort of uh, care and love, uh, which is why they make better mothers, why they make better social workers and teachers and uh, whatever other uh, sort of educational pursuit they may make. So there's, there's actually a kind of, this, this stuff actually does matter. LMAO, imagine there's a woman here. I think there is. I think somebody introduced themselves and said that they were a woman, uh, said that they were a mother. So yeah, prime matter is nothing. Uh, yes, if you want to put it like that, yes. Does that mean that form precedes matter or like the form of man precede the matter of man? Uh, no. So uh, as, as it was said, uh, prime matter, nothing. Um, so everything that exists is going to have some sort of matter and form. Like there's a matter and form of sperm, but sperm, uh, in relation to the form of man is its matter. So matter does in, in a sort of natural way, uh, have to proceed, uh, form, but matter exists for the sake of form. Potency exists for the sake of act. That's its final cause and its perfection. So uh, kind of just make up in the end. Uh, okay, so another question. I did not quite get why Thomas says substantial form is not in the subject. Is he just saying that substantial form with matter uh, makes up the subject? Yes, it's actually exactly what he's saying. Yeah. So um, substantial form doesn't inhere in some sort of subject. That's what he was saying. Where accidental form uh, does inhere in some sort of subject, getting its existence from it. Okay, so question. Uh, what are all the entailments of God having a potential that is not actualized? Example, how uh, would being relational be a property of God that would be actualized between the three persons of the Holy Trinity and eternity past? And if God is not multi-personal, would that mean that it's not being actualized as potential and unitarian God? Let's save that for the section of the Trinity because there's a lot of stuff that needs to be known about um, the notional acts and what constitutes uh, the, sorry, friends texting me, and what constitutes uh, the person, formally speaking. Uh, regarding the beginning of the second paragraph, that wouldn't apply to God as pure act. No, let's let's see. Moreover, uh, for each existence, there is uh, something in potency. Uh, yeah, some <laughs> Yeah, so when it comes to that. Uh, that would just be talking about created being. Uh, it wouldn't apply in the same way to divine being. Okay. Being potency, which is matter, not existence, privation. Are these not the same thing? Are being and existence distinct concepts here? How can uh, non-existence and act exist? So I'll go with those questions 101. Uh, are these not the same thing? Uh, being in potency, which is matter, non-existence, and act, which is privation. Um, so one is negation, the other is primation, uh, privation. So negation is uh, the, 
I guess you could say the the stepping over into the opposite of a certain thing, where negation is just the lack of that thing. So uh, there's a difference between matter, uh, which is potency. Uh, so potency is related to matter. Matter is related to potency. But non-existence in act, non-existence in act is just uh, a pure lack. It, it doesn't sort of have that negative relation, uh, if that makes sense. So are being and existence distinct concepts here? No, they're, they're just all translated essay. This is all just essay. Uh, how can non-existence and act exist if non-existence is not being act? So uh, again, I, th I think uh, it's explained from between negation and privation. Would form be the noise and matter like the echo of that noise? Uh, not sure. Okay. Uh, also, is the fact that angels are only form and no matter related to them being outside of time because they don't have... Uh, anything temporally behind them in organization to them and instead come just uh, from God making them. So angels, uh, and, and this is, this is getting a little off topic, but yeah, angels, they are not a composition of matter and form, but they are a composition of essence and existence. Um, so uh, when it comes to uh, the differences of time, uh, there's a sort of tertium quid between eternity and time called eternity. And avaternity uh, applies to angels because avaternity is the measure of intellectual substances. So uh, that's the shortest answer I can, I can give you. Uh, will there be a recording available to watch? Yes. Okay. So I got through all of the text questions, I think. Are there any other questions? Racism and sexism, my two favorite subjects being taught by Christian B. Wagner. I promise it was accidental, guys. Okay, that seems like it's all. Uh, let, oh no, Saint, what's up? Yeah, so when it comes to, uh, they're both going to be the material cause of a certain thing. And actually, uh, we're going to be getting into that connection, uh, what, chapter three? Yeah, chapter three. And we'll go through, uh, I'll make a big post about this, but we'll, I'll probably try to go through chapters two and three uh, next week since we won't have this big introduction. Uh, kind of see how much material I can actually go through in the sort of hour that I want to keep this to. Um but, uh, yeah, so um, man as, as subject is the material cause of the actuality of an accident. And um, the, the sperm as a material cause of, of the form of the formal cause of man, which is the soul, the form coming to it. So there is this relationship of passivity and actuality. And uh, there's this common sentence. Um, this may be getting a little bit too complicated, that different uh, types of causes are causes of each other uh, in different classes. So um, there, there's a sort of mutuality uh, where one is the cause, the formal cause, the other is the material cause, and they're related as causes of each other. Um, and then we can look at relations of temporal priority and natural priority and everything like that and 
and the sort of priority of uh, perfection uh, between them. But that's going to kind of get us down a, a bit of a rabbit uh, trail. No problem. Okay, so I don't know what to finish in. Um, what should I finish? Uh, I guess I'll just... Okay, let's just finish with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Father Austin Woodbury, pray for us. Okay, that's all. Uh, you guys can talk amongst yourselves or I'll leave. Uh, I unfortunately have stuff to do, so I can't hang. So I will see you guys same time next week, chapters two and three. Uh, goodbye and God bless.